Hey y'all, Eve's here. We're doubling up today with two events in history. On with the show. Hey everyone, welcome to This Day in History class. Today we're going to do something a little bit different than we've been doing. We're bringing on a guest to talk about Delta Sigma Theta's first public act, and that was the Women's Suffrage March, and that was in 1913. So I hope that you all enjoy today's episode. We are doing this in celebration of Women's History Month. March is Women's History Month. So we're going to do this throughout Sundays of this month. So I would like to welcome Katie Mitchell to the show. Katie is a technical writer at a cloud computing company. She's also a freelance writer, and she's a member of Delta Sigma Theta. Welcome, Katie. Hey, Eve. (laughs) Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm glad you're here today. So we're going to talk about Delta Sigma Theta's first public act when they went to the Women's Suffrage March in 1913. Can you tell us a little bit about what happened on the day, how it started, anything you want to say about it? Sure. So this happened in 1913, March 3rd. Um, But before the first public act, Delta Sigma Theta had to be an organization to start with. So on January 13, 1913, 22 undergraduate students founded Delta Sigma Theta at Howard University, HU. And then less than two months later, these 22 young women decided to participate in the Women's Suffrage March. Suffrage meaning that they were marching for the right to vote, obviously. Um, That didn't happen until decades later for black folks and um, around seven years later for white women. But it was like a very radical thing to do for these undergraduate students, say they're 19 through 22, And they're participating in this march that a lot of people didn't want them in. As um, most people know, the women's suffrage movement was segregated itself. White women felt that they needed the right to vote more than black women, more than black men. And that was kind of the catalyst for their movement. So for these 22 black girls to show up at this um, march that was a very large march at the time. Over 250,000 people showed up in D.C. to march for this. It was a very radical and dangerous thing for them to do because they weren't wanted by the white women. The men attacked the entire um, march itself, including the white women. So being black in that space was particularly dangerous for them at the time. Can you tell me anything about why this was the first public act? Like, What's the significance of them doing this before anything else, or this being the first thing that they did that the public was able to see? Delta Sigma Theta started because these women wanted to change. There was already a sorority on campus that they had previously been a part of, but they were unsatisfied with what that sorority was doing as far as making um, making political and social change in the community, um, in the Black community. So they decided to break off and start Delta Sigma Theta, and one of their core tenets was political awareness and involvement. And so for them to have this to be their first act, I think was very intentional. They weren't trying to, you know, just slip in quietly. They were told to um, go to the back Black section of the parade, basically, and they showed up in full force because they knew that political awareness and involvement was a big thing for this new organization, and they wanted to make that statement for the world. Is there anything notable that happened at the time in terms of the reaction that people had to their presence at the march? 
They definitely weren't wanted. The organizer of the march was named Alice Paul, and she told editors of papers that she didn't think that the march should be integrated. She said either there needs to be a white march or there needs to be a black march or no march. And they were aware of this. Um, Their advisor, Mary Trish Terrell, who was a civil rights activist as well, came and advised the 22 women to still um, participate. And their presence was agitating even more to the men, um, the white men who were there. So when violence erupted, like, the march was covered very heavily in the papers. In the papers at that time, they mentioned that there was this group called Delta Sigma Theta that was at this march, and it was a group of black young women also demanding the right to vote. Can you tell me what the significance is of black Greek organizations in general? In general, there are nine MPHC organizations, National Panhellenic Council, and they're community service oriented. They do a lot in um, the black community and on college campuses. A lot of them started at HBCUs, historical black colleges and universities, um, to be organizations that uplift black college-educated people, and not even just their members who have to be college-educated because you can't get into the organization unless you're in the college, but also um, like the elderly, children, whatever the organization is focusing on, that part of the community benefits as well as the members. So, for example, one of the things that my organization, my chapter did, Zy Alpha Georgia Tech, hey y'all, we focused on food insecurity That was a term back in 2012 that not a lot of people were saying, like, what is that? Um, And I was able to educate the college campus, but then also go out into the community to food insecure places and make a difference in that way, too. So March is Women's History Month, which is the reason we're talking about this today. So I want to know what you think the significance is of talking about Black Greek organizations and the women in them in March. Um, so before I joined Delta, I really looked up to certain women. And some of those women included like Ida B. Wells, Fannie Lou Hamer, um, not realizing that they were Deltas too. And I was like following in their footsteps. So chances are, if you look up to a black woman, several black women, some of them are going to be in a sorority and you might not know it. A lot of them, you know, that's not the first thing that they're saying when they introduce themselves because they stand on their own and are doing great things in the community. But if you look back into their past, a lot of the time that foundation comes from the um, sorority that they're in. And just with times like these, with um, the Me Too movement, with Um, Things going on at the border, women getting separated from their children, folks getting locked up on drug charges, but then other people getting to be millionaires because of drugs. Like, I think it's important to look at women who are in the community doing what they're passionate about, whether that's immigration policy, whether that's prison abolition, whether that's voting rights, and to figure out what you're passionate about and get, get to moving because... Girl, it's crazy times out here. Like, it's wild out here. So I think that's why it's important and relevant to look at the past, learn from these women, look at women doing stuff right now and seeing, like, what's what's the thing that you're going to take up and what's the thing that you're going to push forward for the next generation? Can you tell me anything about Delta Sigma Theta, their presence at the Women's Suffrage March, anything relevant to this topic? 
Yeah, so taking it back to math class, you know, Delta means change. And these women were really um, intentional about making that change. Like, nobody would have batted an eye if they would have made a sorority that all they did, you know, it's 1913, they sit around drinking tea in their big hoop dresses, and no one would have blinked an eye, but they saw a different path for themselves, and they saw something different. So one thing that I want people to take away is that when you're doing things in the present, there's a legacy that you may be laying down that you don't even realize. Or maybe you do realize it. I don't know. Maybe they did envision that over 106 years ago or years from their founding that someone like me would be on a podcast talking about them. Who knows? Maybe they had that vision. But a lot of times people are fighting for things that they don't even know if it's going to come to fruition in their lifetime. You know, black the Voting Rights Act didn't pass until 1965. A lot of these women were deceased by then. Mm-hmm. So they were out here marching for something that they wouldn't even get to enjoy. But they did it because they realized that it was important for future generations and not just people that they knew, like people that they didn't know, people who didn't have the opportunities they had. Like, remember, this is 1913. These are black people going to college. The first people that went to college in my family went to college in the 80s. So, like, they were very privileged and they used that privilege to make a difference and to help other people and to, like, move women forward, move black people forward, move the country forward, because it's really a stain on this country that everyone didn't have the right to vote from jump. Get out of my soapbox. You know, <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, it's just like they were aware that they weren't wanted and they went anyway. Like there's times right now where, you know, I feel like I'm not wanted in places, but I'm going to show up because I know it's the right thing to do. I think it was like summer 2016, we were on the highway shutting it down. And, you know, a lot of older people kind of look down on that, saying, like, this isn't the way to do it. But if we look at our foremothers and forefathers, they, were they was on the, the highway thing. shutting it down. Mm-hmm. So we use the tools that we have to do what we have to do and to make changes that we see fit. Yeah, I think it's really important to put history in context because I think the farther away that it gets, we really forget some of the things that we did. And when we look back to things like this, we can understand that what we're doing today, the ways that we're moving and the things that we're doing and the ways that we're organizing really have precedence. There's a reason that we're doing what we're doing today. It's not because people before us didn't do it. It had to have come from somewhere. And this act of Delta Sigma Thetas, I think, is a good way of framing our lives today and framing what people in Delta Sigma Theta and also people who organize in the community and take part in their community, the things that they do. So, yeah, thank you for for putting it that way. Is there anything else that you want to add about this event? I will say that I mentioned Mary Church Terrell was there. She was um, an honorary member of Delta Sigma Theta. Ida B. Wells was there also. She was a lynching, anti-lynching activist, um, a very, I think, the most famous woman at her time. So I think it just shows that, like, the connections that we're seeing starting with the very early days of this organization and going on to now, they were marching for something that they didn't know if they would actually ever see this, but they were still doing it. So I think a takeaway from that for Delta, for the other MPHC organizations, for people in general, is people might say, like, what you're um, marching for, what you're fighting for, it's probably a moonshot. It's not going to happen. Like, people want reparations. People want open borders. Like, it might sound really out of this world now, 
And we might not be able to live to see the day that that is actually a reality. But like the 22 founders, still do it anyway, because people in the future will benefit from the audacity of you to think that we can have reparations or we can have open borders or we can have, you know, the thing that you know that we should have. Yeah. You know, it's really unfortunate how many times I've heard people say, you know, this isn't going to get done. Like, you know, this is ridiculous. Right. I've heard so many people and Black people and Black women shut others down because something seems impossible. This is not just Black people. This is, you know, everybody. But since we're talking about Black women specifically today, I've heard that so much. And it is, it's sad, but it's like, because we've had to fight so long, because we've struggled so long and had to go through so much to get the things that we have today, um, we lose sight of it. And I think that this event in history is also another way of reminding us that sometimes things take a long time. (laughs) A lot of times things take a long time. And because our lives are so short, we don't recognize the scale of things. Right, right. And we don't recognize how every little piece is a layer that's built onto a foundation and in the end creates the building that, you know, we can all be proud of. Yeah, we definitely have a myopic view. It's like, well, I got 80 years here and it ain't happening in 80 years. So. <laughs> but yeah, like people said, slavery would never end. Like, can you imagine, like you were enslaved your whole life and that's it. So that's all you know. That's what you think the condition of the world is always going to be. Right. But then, you know, your grandchildren are emancipated and, you know, they... Well, they start sharecropping, but then, you know. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> Let's not go there. It wasn't, it wasn't that great. Great Girl, I was going. Go through all the history. I, you know, I saw Isabella at uh, Agnes. Hey, Isabella. This going to turn um, into <laughs> But, yeah, so, like, people say it's impossible. It seems impossible. It may very well be, but you still got to try. You still got to make your voice known because you never know. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for being here today, Katie. Yeah. Thank you, Eve. Thanks for having me. Keep up with us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at TDIHC Podcast. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you come back tomorrow for more delicious morsels of history. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Eves, and you're listening to This Day in History Class, a show where we peel back a new layer of history every day. The day was March 3rd, 1938. A group of oil prospectors working for an American company discovered a commercially viable source of petroleum near Dammam in Saudi Arabia. Since then, Saudi Arabia has consistently been one of the world's top oil producers. The Kingdom of Saudi Arabia was established in 1932, when Ibn Saud combined four regions into one state through conquest. Ibn Saud called for searches for oil, a resource that had demand and would be a big source of income for a country that needed a boost in its economy. In 1933, Saudi Arabia signed a contract with the Standard Oil Company of California, also known as SoCal. SoCal was granted the right to prospect for oil in Saudi Arabia's eastern provinces. Side note, SoCal is now Chevron. In September of that year, American geologists arrived in Saudi Arabia to begin surveys of the land by car and airplane. A couple of months later, the California Arabian Standard Oil Company, or CASOC, was formed. 
Kasach's name was later changed to Arabian American Oil Company, or Aramco. Geologists began surveying an area around a geological formation near the city of Damam on the east coast of the country. Drilling on the first well began in April of 1935, and drilling of the second well started in February of 1936. Soon, more wells were authorized in the area. Those wells did produce some oil, but most of them eventually produced more water than oil. Damam Oil Well Number 7 at first seemed like it would also be fruitless. The well reached more than 3,000 feet beneath the earth and no water or oil had been found. But Chief Geologist Max Steinecke thought that they would find oil in the well, and he told the company to keep drilling. They did, and on March 3, 1938, they struck a significant amount of oil. Within three weeks, the well had produced over 100,000 barrels of oil. In the beginning, the oil was sent to Bahrain by barge for export. But in 1939, the first tanker load of oil was shipped overseas. Now that Kasach had found oil, it continued mapping and exploring Saudi Arabia, looking for more. By 1949, Kasach, now Aramco, had reached a production of 500,000 barrels per day. By 1950, the Trans-Arabian Pipeline had begun operations. Aramco already paid Saudi Arabia a fee and other benefits. But that year, Aramco began to split its profits with the Saudi government. In 1973, the Saudi government purchased 25% of Aramco. By the next year, it increased its stake to 60%. And in 1980, all of Aramco's oil rights, production apparatus, and facilities came under government control. By this time, Dimam Oil Well No. 7 alone had produced more than 27 million barrels. Eight years later, the company became Saudi Aramco. Over the next few decades, the company continued to expand its operations and production, fueling Saudi Arabia's economy. Of course, oil production in Saudi Arabia has been an issue closely tied to economics, politics, and the environment. Today, Saudi Arabia is the world's second largest crude oil producer. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. Feel free to share your thoughts or your innermost feelings with us and with other listeners on social media at TDIHC Podcast. And you can email us at thisday at iheartmedia.com. Thank you for listening to today's episode. We'll see you again tomorrow with another one. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite show.